Hi, and welcome to Ancient History Hound, a podcast where I dig up different, often unusual topics from ancient history. If you're someone new to the podcast, thanks for downloading. My name is Neil, and if you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back, and hopefully you've noticed a bit of a change. I've done a rebrand with a new logo and podcast name, which I hope will help reach out to people who are interested in all things historical and ancient. And in case you're wondering why I've named it Ancient History Hound, I wanted to include the content of what I do in the title, and if you follow me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, you may well have seen the pics of the family dog in a Roman legionary helmet. Anyway, this episode I've titled Night of the Livy Dead 2, as last year I did the first Night of the Livy Dead, a two-parter where I sat and chatted with a guest about horror stories from antiquity and how they compare to modern ones. In this episode, I'll be including some of those horror stories and others I've found, as well as some new bits and opinions. So feel free afterwards to perhaps go back and listen to the Night of the Livy Dead two-parter I did last year. Just before I start, don't forget you can check out articles I've done and links to my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and even YouTube channel on my site, ancientblogger.com. We start with a mainstay of horror, the vampire. As a kid, growing up in the 80s, I remember being terrified by the likes of Fright Night and Salem's Lot. And in later years, I remember responding in similar fashion to Keanu Reeves' British accent in the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula. Whether it's Christopher Lee snarling across, a teenage vampire in touch with his feelings and perhaps unaware that what he's doing is a little bit stalky, or a kick-ass vamp staking heroin, I imagine you've your own favourite vampire film, character or show. It's easy to think the vampire started with Bram Stoker back in 1897, and I suppose much of the modern appetite for bloodsuckers has derived from this, as well as what we understand as being a vampire. Yet the vampire has its origins deep in the past. If we step away from the generalised modern depiction, the concept of something undead feeding on the living can be found as far back as ancient Mesopotamia. A number of cuneiform tablets were found at the palace of King Ashurbanipal at Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq. Upon these were written magical incantations, and though we can date the tablets to around 700 BCE, the actual incantations belong to a very old tradition. One incantation offers protections against Ekimu, and if, like me, you played Witcher 3, you might recognise the name as these are a type of vampire in the game. They were also known as Edimu, and these were the spirits of those not buried correctly. At best, they might bother you, and at worst, they might drain you whilst you slept. Around the similar time to the tablets, there is reference to blood-drinking creatures in Homer's Odyssey. In order to attract the spirits of the dead for a chat, Odysseus cuts the throats of sheep and directs the blood into a pit he's dug. Nice. The spirits arrive for a snack, and now Odysseus is on his toes in order to keep them away. That is, until he's spoken to them and I'll be picking up on this particular story a little later on. Moving to the classical period, we have an early reference to a type of Greek vampire called an empusa in Aristophanes' comedy The Frogs. Dionysus and his slave Xanthius are travelling in the underworld when Xanthius spots an empusa changing form from a bull to a mule and then to an attractive woman. He also comments on her copper leg, which is quite a bizarre feature an empusa was said to have. In another Aristophanes comedy, The Assemblywoman, the impuser is used again to draw laughs, this time when an elderly prostitute is compared to one by a young man. As the aged woman goes to drag him off, 
he recoils in horror and yells that she is some kind of epusa, all swollen up with the blood of its victims. Presumably, some of the humour in play here is derived from the absurd notion that an elderly prostitute could be considered an empusa. After all, why would a creature which could assume any shape at will choose the form of an old woman in this situation? Both the empusa and the elderly prostitute hunger for young men, but for very different reasons. And then there's the non-too-subtle joke about age. Both are associated with death, the empusa by being a vampire of sorts, and the elderly sex worker by virtue of her age. If it was considered ludicrous for an elderly woman to be an impuser, we could recognise that the form one would take would be the opposite to it, i.e. a young pretty girl, which is exactly the form one of them takes when Xanthius spots it in the frogs which I mentioned earlier. The idea of the impuser as a sort of seductress is picked up in a story by Philostratus, who wrote about an encounter Apollonius had with one. Though the story dates to the 2nd century AD, it's set in the 1st century AD, and this retrospective storytelling is something we'll find with many of these types of tales. In it, Apollodorus, a famous Greek philosopher, helps a student of his, Menippus, as he has fallen for the charms of a rich and beautiful Phoenician woman. The two are planning to marry, and Apollodorus goes with him to meet her at the wedding breakfast. It's fair to say that the two don't really get on. Apollodorus points out that all the gold and silver goblets and the decoration, as well as some of the retinue, aren't real. They are just a trick. He then accuses the woman of being an abuser, who is using her talents to fool and seduce Menippus for the purposes of eating him. The bride-to-be puts up a bit of a defence before Apollodorus, in a way which isn't really explained, proves that the servants gold goblets and everything else is exactly that, an illusion, leaving the woman to confess that, yes, she's an impuser and was feeding Menippus up with pleasures with the intent of later devouring him, adding that the young were most attractive to her because their blood is pure and strong. And in fairness, who hasn't been to a wedding a little like that? I think there's a clear dichotomy at work. On one side, you've got the rational male, and the other is the foreign woman looking to deceive and corrupt. This did make me think of Medea, and it's perhaps ironic that though Apollodorus and Medea are made opposite in this context, they can both equally ruin a wedding. The impuser is somewhat difficult to fully understand, as she's often associated with the Lamia and Mormo, who operate in a similar way and are often mixed up. Yet there are notable aspects we have which would tick the boxes of the modern vampire. We've got the foreign and exotic, the seductive, the ability to weave a spell, which is often framed within the vampire's hypnotic ability, and of course, shapeshifting. And shapeshifting leads us neatly to our next subject, the werewolf. For obvious reasons, when I was discussing about the vampire, I mentioned Dracula, and where the modern vampire has Dracula as a reference point, the werewolf doesn't. And it's a really good argument which Adam Douglas in his book The Beast Within makes. There is no single work which posits what we need to expect for a werewolf, nothing which lays out the laws and law of lycanthropy. And yet, despite this, there is a checklist of things which are linked to the werewolf. For example, the full moon and the aversion to silver. Exactly how these associations came into play is dealt with by Douglas, and I'll be picking this up a bit later on. The Epic of Gilgamesh dating to the 2nd millennium BC, featured a story in which a shepherd is turned into a wolf by Ishtar, 
His dogs then attack him in his new form. It's one of the earliest references to the transformation from a man into wolf, and in some way anticipates the later myth of Actaeon, who suffered a similar fate when transformed into a stag by Artemis. Writing in the 2nd century AD, Pausanias tells us of Demarchus, who boxed at the Olympics around 400 BCE and won. Impressive though this was, the real feat was that Demarchus had resumed training having been a werewolf for nine years before changing back. Pausanias dismisses this story, obviously though he reports it, and I wonder what he'd make of the Teen Wolf sequel. This isn't the only reference in Pausanias to werewolves. He also writes of an instance where an Arcadian king called Lycaon sacrificed a child to Zeus and was turned into a wolf as punishment. Perhaps coincidentally, Demarchus is mentioned as coming from Arcadia, and it's true to say that Arcadia was a region in Greece which was associated with magic and bizarre goings-on. On Mount Lycaos, the sanctuary to Lycaon Zeus was to be found, and it's here which a ceremony attached to werewolves seems to be located. Pausanias doesn't mention the nature of the sacrifice there, which might indicate that it had close associations with a human offering, but at least Pausanias is a bit more forward about what else went on there. To quote, Apparently, a man is changed into a wolf at the sacrifice to Lycaon Zeus, but that the change is not for life if, when he's a wolf, he abstains from human flesh. After nine years, he becomes a man again, but if he tastes human flesh, he remains a beast forever. Pliny in his Natural History also mentioned the ritual but differed slightly. He added that a member of one family was chosen by Lot. After hanging his clothes on the branch of an oak tree, he then swam across a lake and was turned into a wolf for nine years. If he avoided attacking or eating a man, he could then return to human form by simply swimming back across the same lake and retrieving his clothes. I think we can speculate that the change from man to wolf wasn't a literal one. Instead, it seems that this might have been a type of rite of passage for selected youths. Perhaps they were sent into the countryside to defend for themselves for a period of time. This wouldn't have been something that unusual. Sparta had the Cryptia, a rite of passage for selected young men. Neither Pliny or Pausanias buy into the werewolf myth. We might think this was convenient scepticism retrospectively made. Yet Herodotus also mentions werewolves, and is none too convinced either. The werewolves of Herodotus aren't based in Greece, but Scythia, more specifically a tribe called the Neuri, who seem to have been based in modern-day western Ukraine. If you've listened to my podcast on Amazons, you might remember this as where they also resided. According to a tale which he doesn't believe, the Neuri change into wolves once a year. Herodotus also mentions that these people practice magic, and perhaps this facilitated the change. On the subject of transformation, we've had a variety of ways you might turn into a wolf, from the force changed by a deity to swimming, but nothing that specific. Other writers were, pun intended, able to flesh things out a little. Take Virgil. His werewolf called Murris used herbs from Pontus to make the change. Virgil's tale dates to around the middle of the 1st century BCE, but it's the middle of the 1st century AD when we get a really decent story about a werewolf. Petronius, in his work The Satyricon, featured a character called Nicerus, who was a freedman. At the famous feast of Trimalchio, he recalls an incident back when he was a slave and in love with a widow. With his master on a trip, Nicerus decides to visit her at night. He takes with him an ex-soldier, perhaps a safety, as travelling night could be a dangerous affair. And it's at this point when it all gets very weird, and I'll read the account. We blundered off 
around the time of the cock's crow while the moon was shining as bright as midday. We went among the graves and my friend went among the stones to defecate. Classy. I sat singing and counting grave markers and then, as I looked for my companion, he appeared and placed all his clothes near the road. My breath nearly jumped out of my nose. I was standing like a corpse, but he urinated around his clothes and suddenly became a wolf. Don't you dare imagine I'm joking, that I'm lying. I make nothing for such an inheritance as this. But back to what I started to say. After he turned into a wolf, he began to howl and fled into the forest. At first, I didn't remember where I was. Then I went to gather up his clothes, but they had been transformed into stones. What could I do but die from fear? I drew my sword and struck at the shadows before me until I made it to my girlfriend's home. I entered as pale as a ghost with sweat rushing down to my groin, my eyes nearly dead. I could hardly regain myself. My Melissa was at first surprised because I'd gone out so late and then she said, I wish you'd come earlier, you could have helped us. A wolf entered the house and loosed more blood from the ship than a butcher. He escaped but he didn't laugh. An older slave tore his throat with a spear. Once I heard these words, I couldn't sleep any longer at first light. I fled the home of Gaius like an angry landlord. But once I came to the place where his clothing had turned to stone, I found nothing but blood. Honestly, I went home and my soldier was lying like a bull on his bed as a doctor was tending his neck. I knew then that he was a shapeshifter. And I wouldn't be able to share a meal with him, even if he threatened to kill me. Let these men believe what they want about this, but if I'm lying, let the gods hate me. Apart from the fantastic amateur dramatics there, there's quite a lot to take from this story. Perhaps the most significant is the sympathetic wound, an instance wherein a werewolf receives an injury which carries over to their human form and thus reveals their identity. In the 16th century, France had something of an epidemic of werewolves, or at least accounts of them. One incident involved an attack by a large wolf. Some local men injured it and tracked it to a hut where a man called Michel Verdun was tending fresh wounds. Upon being tortured, he confessed to being a werewolf as well as implicating another man as being one too. Both Petronius' story and the Lycaon rituals cite water as facilitating the change in some way. Swimming in a lake isn't exactly the same as urine, unless you're using the local pool, but there's something going on here. The soldier urinates in a circle around his clothes, and it might be that there's some sort of boundary and that he was sealing off his human form in there. The Lycaon ritual had clothes being hung on a tree, and in Nisarus' story, they're turned to stone. Nysus's story might be a parody of the werewolf trope as it existed at that time. Without the context of the other werewolf stories, we just don't get the joke. The urinating part of the story could be, pun intended, comic relief, especially if the stock werewolf story at the time involved a more complex transformation ritual involving water and incantations and things. It's certainly worth remembering that the story was taken at Tremalchio's feast, which is not exactly a slab of Livy or something to be taken that seriously. It was a parody, a satire. Going back to my opening point regarding werewolf lore, there's much we can identify with. There's transformation of man into a wolf, and the werewolf being positioned as a dangerous foe. But there's a lot here which doesn't chime with our modern interpretations. There's no full moon. The moon is mentioned in Nysus's tale, but purely to establish that because of its brightness he could see everything. It's not a trigger for the transformation. And on the topic of transformation, the change is into a wolf, not half man, half wolf. There's also no silver as a weapon you could use against a werewolf. Adam Douglas covers this, and if you're a fan of werewolves, 
I really recommend you'd pick up his book, The Beats Within, which I mentioned earlier. What he posits is that much of the law concerning werewolves was driven by cinema in the 20th century. In the earlier 20th century, the story of Jekyll and Hyde was really popular in the nascent film industry. And in many ways, the werewolf could be a version of this. These early films gave us the more traditional facets of the werewolf, which are often absent from the werewolf stories of Greece and Rome. Take the infectious bite, wherein if you're bitten, you become a werewolf. Not mentioned in antiquity at all. And this first appears in a 1935 film called The Werewolf of London. The use of silver as a weapon against the werewolf came almost by accident. The 1941 Lon Chanley film The Wolfman sees the werewolf finally beaten with a walking stick, apology for spoilers, and that had a silver head to it. Silver bullets don't surface till The House of Frankenstein in 1944, and I only mention this really as trivia because, for obvious reasons, I didn't expect to read about silver bullets in ancient Greece and Rome. The full moon as a trigger becomes a very handy filmic device on the big screen, less so when you're telling the story. The idea that the moon causes the change is a brilliant way of ratcheting up tension when showing the story visually. Think of your favourite werewolf film and there will be a scene where you see a cut to the moon coming out behind some clouds and you know something bad's going to happen. And then there's the change. The modern day audience won't be as scared of a wolf as perhaps the Greeks and the Romans were, simply because we don't see them as that much of a viable threat. A wolf was something dangerous and to be respected. There was also a subtle aspect to it. The wolf was other. It represented the countryside and the non-city. In an oral tale, a wolf can do many things, but on the screen, yeah, it's a bit more difficult. In 1913, a werewolf film by Canadian director Henry McRae used a timber wolf as the protagonist, but then everyone fell in love with the wolf. Not surprisingly, wolves aren't really that good at acting, so having a half-man, half-wolf offers a number of advantages. Yeah, it can be far more dangerous in terms of interacting with objects. It can jump over things, punch through things. Obviously, it looks scarier. And it might be easier to work with, though perhaps not all the time. The Greeks and Romans may have placed the werewolf as underlining the threshold between man and nature, city and countryside. But up next is possibly even scarier, because our next subject looked to exist within the city walls and even your home. I'm going to be talking about ghosts. A bedsheet can make a Roman toga, a Greek hemation, and with addition of two eye holes, a simple ghost outfit. And I don't think that's a coincidence. In Homer, we have various encounters with spirits. There's the mildly comic one, such as Odysseus with the shade of Elpnor, one of his men in the Odyssey. Odysseus is unaware that Elpnor had died. He asks him how exactly. Elpnor replies to telling him that he simply got drunk whilst at Circe's palace and climbed onto a roof to sleep it off, the way you do. He then fell off and broke his neck. Other spirits are encountered, including Odysseus meeting his own mother, which is quite poignant. They try and hug, but are unable to, given the fact that she doesn't have a physical form. Thankfully, Odysseus wasn't slimed. The spirits of Agamemnon and Ajax occupy the other end of the spooky spectrum. Agamemnon goes on a rant about women which would make social media blush, whilst Ajax ignores Odysseus completely. The pair famously fell out over who should receive the armour of Achilles, and to use modern parlance, Ajax's ghost ghosts Odysseus. Odysseus' encounter with the spirits is made possible due to a rite he's performed, so he's inviting ghosts to him. In contrast, a spirit might just drop on you unexpected. 
In the Iliad, Achilles is visited by the ghost of Patroclus, who scolds him for not having buried him yet. It seems another instance of shades giving shade. One notable aspect of the encounters in Homer is that they're anything but scary. Perhaps it wouldn't do to have Achilles do a shaggy and start the word ghost, but there isn't much of an attempt to portray the spirits as causing any kind of fear. Indeed, with Achilles, it's the opposite. He's really, really grateful and emotional about seeing Patroclus. This may also be a product of the beliefs at this point. If you subscribe to Greek religious thought, you expected the dead to have a non-physical form and reside in the afterlife. The Greeks seem accustomed to spirits occupying old tales and newer ones. For example, Euripides' play Hecuba opens with the ghost of Polydorus. It's in the following centuries and leading to the 1st century AD where we start to have more accounts of various types of hauntings, including ghost stories. One of the best comes as from Phlegon, writing in the 2nd century AD, though the story is set in the 4th century BC and in Macedonia. It all starts with a chap called Machates, who's a lodger and is visited at night by a girl called Philinian. She spends several nights with him and they exchange gifts. One night, a nurse spots what's going on. She tells her mistress, Philinian's mother, who can't believe the story. Reason being is that Philinian died several months earlier. When she asks Machates, he shows her gifts she has given him, which the mother recognises of being in tune with her daughter. The next night, they wait up for Philinian to visit, and when she does, her mother confronts her. The result is Philinian throwing a classic teenage drop, and going so far to point out that her mother really has ruined it this time before dropping dead. When they take the body to the tomb, they find gifts that Machates had given to her, but not the body of Philinian, which is no surprise given that they're carrying her. This obviously causes quite a stir in the town, and various rites are performed, as well as Philinian's body being burnt. A resurrected corpse visiting a young man at night feels like it should sit more with vampires than it does ghosts. There's definitely a few similarities to the tale of the impuser we had earlier, and if we knew what Philinian's agenda was in all of this, we could place it within that context. Still, it's quite chilling. The next story continues the theme of resurrected corpses, albeit ones which act in a way which is anything but secretive. The year was 191 BCE, or around it, and it involves a situation following a battle in an account by Phlegon. The battle is actually a battle of Thermopylae, but not the one you probably know. The Romans had beaten their opponents, and then it started to get weird. I'll read you the account. There was a certain Buplagos, a cavalry commander from Syria, who'd been held in high esteem by King Antiochus, and had fallen after fighting nobly. At midday, whilst the Romans were gathering all the enemy's arms, Buplagos stood up from among the dead, though he had twelve wounds, and went to the Roman camp, where he proclaimed in a soft voice the following verses. Stop despoiling an army gone to the land of Hades, for already Zeus Cronides is angrily beholding your ill deeds, wrathful at the slaughter of an army and at your doings, and will send a bold-hearted tribe against your land that will put an end to your rule, and you will pay for what you have wrought. Shaken by this utterance, the Roman generals quickly convened them with the multitude and deliberated about the ghost. They decided to cremate and bury Buplagos, who'd expired immediately after his utterance. He purified the camp, performed a sacrifice to Zeus, and sent a delegation to the oracle at Delphi to ask the god what they should do. Perhaps the story behind this belongs to a morality tale concerning post-battle etiquette and how you treat the corpses of those you have beaten, a way of scaring Roman legionaries into ensuring that they weren't overzealous and avoided doing anything a superstitious military culture might deem as inappropriate.
The dead looking to talk to the living isn't anything that new, and Pliny writes of a sailor called Gabinus who, after having his throat slit, rose from the dead and demanded a chat with Sextus Pompey. Perhaps recording ghost stories ran in the family, as Pliny's nephew, Pliny the Younger, wrote a letter where he includes a quite famous spooky tale. It involved Athenodorus and is set in Athens. We can place it to the 1st century BC, and this continues a trend I mentioned earlier, where some of these stories occur sometime prior to their being told. And whether this was to lessen the sort of vigorous questioning they'd be exposed to had they occurred recently, we don't know. But, but anyway, I'll continue and read the account. There was in Athens a house, large and spacious, which had a bad reputation, as though it was filled with pestilence. In the dead of night a noise was frequently heard, resembling the clashing of iron, which, if you listen carefully, sounded like the rattling of chains. The noise would seem to be a distance away, but then started coming closer and closer and closer. Immediately after this, a spectre would appear in the form of an old man, emaciated and squalid, bristling hair and a long beard, and rattling the chains on his hands and feet as he moved. The unfortunate inhabitants of the house went sleepless at night due to unimaginable and dismal terrors. Without sleep, as it happened to others, their health was ruined, and they were struck with some kind of madness as the horrors in their minds increased. They were led on a path towards death. Eventually, even during the daytime, when the ghost did not appear, the memory of their nightmares was so strong that it still passed before their eyes every waking moment. Their terror was constant, even when the source of fear was gone. Because of this, the house was eventually deserted and damned as uninhabitable, abandoned entirely to the ghost. In hope that some tenant might eventually be found, who was ignorant of the house's malevolence, a bill was posted for its sale. As it happened, a philosopher by the name of Athenodorus came to Athens at that time. Reading the bill for the house, he easily discovered the price, and being an intelligent man, he was suspicious at its extremely low cost. Someone did tell him the whole story, and yet he wasn't dissuaded, but was instead eager to make the purchase. Thus he did. When evening drew near, Athenodorus asked for a couch to be readied for him at the front of the house. He asked for his writing materials and a lamp, and then asked his retainers to retire for the night. In order to ensure that his mind stayed focused and away from the distractions of stories about imaginary noises and apparitions, he pulled all his energy into his writing. For a while the night was silent, then the rattling of fetters began. Athenodorus would not lift his eyes, nor set down his pen. Instead, he concentrated on his writing, and therefore closed his ears. But the noise wouldn't stop, and it only increased and drew closer, until it seemed to be at the door, and then standing in his very chamber. Finally, Athenodorus looked away from his work, and saw the ghost standing just as been described. It stood there, waiting, beckoning with one finger. Athenodorus held up his palm as though the visitor should wait a moment, and once again it bent over his work. The ghost, impatient, shook his chains over the philosopher's head, beckoning in again. This time, Athenodorus picked up his lamp and followed the ghost as it moved slowly, as though it was held back by his chains. Upon reaching the courtyard, the ghost suddenly vanished. Now on his own, Athenodorus carefully marked the spot where the ghost vanished with a handful of leaves and grass. The following day, he asked the magistrate to have that spot dug up, and in that spot was found, entwined with chains, the skeleton of a man. The body had lain in the ground a long time and had left the bones bare and corroded by the fetters. The bones were then collected and given a proper burial at public expense, and since the ghost's tortured soul had been finally laid to rest, the house in Athens was haunted no more.
In this instance, the ghost seems genuine and not someone looking to scare you off because they'd found gold there. Or as the Romans might have said, Imo vero effugisem nisi vos liberi, imi scuestis. That's, and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids in Latin. Thanks to at Nonsuch Classics for the translation. Though the story gives us what is the classic ghost trope of the rattling change, there is still the theme of proper burial rites. Pliny's tale might have been part of a wider tradition of haunted houses. Portus, a comic playwright of the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, wrote the Ron Mostellaria, which features a ghost in a house. The house isn't really haunted, as you might have guessed. It's all a ruse thought of by Tranio the slave. Here, though, the haunting is made plausible because someone was murdered and buried within the house. So there seems to be a connection between incorrect burial, murder and a ghost, which was recognised and accepted by even an audience attending a comedy. Suetonius also gets on in the act. He refers to a villa near Velitre, which belonged to Augustus's grandfather. A small room there was known as Augustus's nursery, and it rumoured to be haunted. Suetonius even comments that, recently this was proved true when the new owner slept there. A few hours later he was thrown out of bed and found half dead against the wall. Now, I'd go so far to classify that as a poltergeist. After all, the worst Athenodorus got was being pointed at. It wasn't just houses where the unexplained occurred. The baths of Chaeronea in central Greece were, according to Plutarch, resonant to ghostly activity. This had been caused by a local rebel called Damon being lured back to the city where he was ambushed whilst bathing. The hauntings got so severe that the parts of the baths it occurred in were walled up, and Plutarch reminds us that even to this day, the locals reported strange sounds there. From what we can work out, the murder probably took place around 74 BC. And given that Plutarch was writing towards the end of the 1st century AD, that's quite some stretch of time to be haunting. And on the subject of time, this brings me to the close of Night of the Livy Dead 2. No spoilers as to what I'll be calling next year's Halloween episode. Thanks again for downloading and listening. I really hope you enjoyed this. Just to recap, you can find links to all my content on ancientblogger.com, and I'm always keen to hear from you. So come and say hello on Twitter, where I'm at ancientblogger, and on Instagram, ancientblogger, on Facebook, ancientblogger, and ancientblogger on YouTube. You can kind of detect a bit of a pattern there. On whichever platform you're listening to this, please rate if you can, and even if you can't. Till next time, take care, and keep safe. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!